Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name to each of you. It's a uh, privilege to be together in the house of God once more and be challenged and and uh, taught. And I think we've we've experienced that so far this morning. I have a bit of news for you this morning, which I I doubt is is news actually. Are you aware that we live in an evil world? Does that come as any surprise to anybody? Anybody disagree with that analysis? I contemplated how the New Testament writers refer to this world, and this is not at all exhaustive, but Paul talks about, in Galatians 1, he talks about the present evil world. In Ephesians 5, he tells us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And in 1 John, John tells us that the whole world lieth in wickedness. Peter sums it up when he says, Seeing all these things, and all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You know, I think we as Christians have a have a fairly good grasp on the realities of good and evil, the struggle of good and evil, and even as born-again people, the, the struggle that we face from day to day in our souls, uh, the, the wrestling of good and evil. Um, I think, unless I'm unique, I'm assuming that the rest of you understand what I'm talking about. There is a verse that um, brings another dynamic to this idea of evil that I'd like to point you to this morning, and that, found, that is found in 1 Thessalonians, the last chapter, chapter 5. You can turn there if you wish. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22. As Paul is uh, summarizing this book here to the church at Thessalonica, he has these, these uh, short little sentences in the, in the very last summary of the book, which each of them are probably multiple topics in and of themselves. I would like to pull one of these out and talk about it a bit this morning, because I have often, as we have read over that verse, I have often thought, now just exactly what did Paul mean whenever he he gave this, this advice? And I'd like to tear this verse apart a little this morning and consider it with you. And that is verse 22, six short words. Abstain from all appearance of evil. So we talked about good and evil, and we can probably define that a bit. But what about the appearance of evil? Well, let's uh, let's get busy and define some words here. Let, let's go to the word evil itself. The word evil in the Bible, that the English word evil appears about 550 times in our King James Version. However, contextually, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there's various meanings of the word evil. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you those meanings so that we know which evil we're talking about this morning. So in the Old Testament, uh, we have verses such as this in Genesis 37, uh, story of Joseph, and there... Uh, the father said, surely some evil beast must have devoured this man. Well, there the word evil means mean or nasty or injurious. It's not evil as we would think of evil necessarily. Uh, Psalm 91 talks about, there shall no evil befall thee. 
In that verse, it means misfortune or mischief. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that the sons of men is full of evil. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And there, it gives the idea that we have a disposition toward depravity, which I don't think comes as as any news to you. In the New Testament, we have two Greek words that are translated evil. The one is... uh, uh, I, I always hesitate to try to pronounce these words, so I won't. But it means depraved or bad or wicked in the very character. So just flat bad, okay? And I'm going to give you an example of a, where this, this word is used like this. In Romans 1, where it talks about backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. That is just rotten, evil to the core. The very character of whatever Paul's writing about here is completely bad. The other use of the word evil is a Greek word that means a hurtful influence or a disease. Okay, so not like rotten to the core, but kind of this 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 influence or this, this uh, hurtful disease. And that would be used in as an example, in uh, Ephesians 5.16, where it says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. All right? And also in this verse here that we're considering this morning, abstaining from all appearance of evil. So the appearance of evil here is the the appearance of um, the hurtful influence or the disease. All right? So we, so we have that. That's the way that the term is used here. I say, so what about the word abstain? I, I think we understand what abstain means, and that means is just to keep away from it. Just simply, just abstain. I, do I need to say more? Uh, I think we know what abstinence is. It's just to, to remove oneself from or to keep a distance. The word appearance here in the Greek is translated a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Um, it means appearance or form or shape or sight. Um, as an example, in Luke 3, when it talks about Jesus there at his baptism, it says the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape. Okay, that, that word shape there is the same word that is used here and translated appearance. The NIV uh, translates this verse, avoid every kind of evil. And, and that's, a, that's a legitimate rendering of this verse. However, in this particular um, translation or King James translation, I actually like that translation better, the appearance of evil. Because I think in both, in both uh, translations, it, it gives the sense that um, there might be things that are evil, but it takes a bit of deciphering to, to figure that all out. And there's some things that uh, may appear evil, then maybe while they aren't inherently evil, the very appearance to them gives the wrong, a subtle message. And so Paul says, let's abstain. Paul, if you read through the, the letter here to the church at Thessalonica here, there's two things become clear. He wants to inspire a holy walk and a compelling testimony. And because of time constraints, I won't, I won't, take the time to read the verses, but 
If you read 1 Thessalonians 1.6 and 1 Thessalonians 2.10 and you put those two verses together, it becomes very apparent that he wants his people to be inspired to a holy walk. Maybe I should just read them. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Ghost. Now run right over to chapter 2 and verse 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves when we were among you. Okay, so put those two verses together, and he's saying, we tried to behave ourselves, and we really want you to behave yourself as well. That's putting it in the very revised version. He also wants his people here at Thessalonica, or God's people, I should say, to have a compelling testimony. And I think uh, that's brought out in... um, verse 12 of chapter 4, he said that ye may walk honestly toward those that are without. So what I would like to do uh, for the remainder of our time is I would like to look at some Bible characters that I believe wrestled with this thing of the appearance of evil, see how they related to it, and then I would like to analyze how this piece of advice maybe fits in 2018 for us here as a brotherhood at Prairie. So first of all, let's uh, quickly analyze some biblical examples of people that encountered what I think was the appearance of evil, and let's see how they dealt with it and how it worked out for them. <clears throat> the first character I would like to consider is our uh, our uh, dear friend Lot in Genesis 13, when him and Abraham <clears throat> were having this problem that there were so many cattle and servants and so on that they simply did not have enough grass. And so, you know the you know the drill. Abraham said, "You pick." Lot says, "I'm going to the plain," and Abraham says, "Fine, I'll go to the mountains." And in verse 12 of chapter 13, it says, "Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom." So that's a factual statement. Now, the writer of Genesis, which we think was Moses, we believe is Moses, gives commentary on that in the very next verse. He says, "But the men of Sodom were wicked." And sinners before the Lord exceedingly. <clears throat> it feels like Moses felt like that was an important piece of information to us to have whenever he says Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. <clears throat> this is a very familiar story. You know the story of the angels and how they came to Sodom at eventide. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 19 that at the point when the angels came to the, to the gates of Sodom, it said Lot sat in the gates of Sodom. And we always refer to that as probably a not-so-great place to be sitting, and I think for good reason. If you drop down seven verses in chapter 19, you have the um, hullabaloo at the door of, um, of Lot that night. Uh, unbelievable conversation going on there. But now listen to, listen to how Lot addresses the people of Sodom. He says, I pray, brethren, do not so wickedly. Brethren, really? Now, Peter gives some commentary on, uh, on this man Lot in his letter. In 2 Peter 2.7, he's talking about Lot here, and it says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, there's something we need to understand about this commentary that Luke gives. I'm sorry, Peter gives. 
That word vexed, if I would say that I was vexed this past week, immediately your, your idea of my state of mind would have been I was a little upset or I was uh, ready to, you know, put on the boxing gloves. I was, you know, a little angry maybe. That's not the way the word vexed should be interpreted here. It is better interpreted worn down. All right, so let's read that. And delivered just lot, worn down with the filthy conversation of the wicked. In seeing and in hearing, it wore down his righteous soul from day to day. In chapter 19, verse 14, Lot gets it. The angel is saying, you better gather together your family and get out of here. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked to his son-in-law. All right, let's, let's put this all together. In hindsight, Lot made a very big mistake. He did not properly consider the influence that that city would have on his righteous soul and his power of example. He appeared in the eyes of his son-in-law to be a silent, tacit accomplice, accomplice to the evil that was going on in that city. Even though it was, it was vexing his soul and wearing it down, his sons-in-law laughed at him and said, Really? You want us to leave the city? Hey, who was the one that moved into the city? You were in the mountains and now you want us to go to the mountains? What, what Lot encountered here was the appearance of evil. That, that's all there was to it. To his, from his sons-in-law's perspective, he was an accomplice to what was happening in this city to the point that he was willing to call these vile men his brothers. The second example I want to point you to happens in Matthew 26, where Peter, you, you, Jesus is in Pilate's Hall under uh, scrutiny. Peter's out by the fire warming himself. I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Peter had somewhat an identity crisis that evening, I truly believe. And I have a lot of mercy on Peter. I really do. My heart goes out to old Peter there. And I, I really don't want to cast any, any stones unduly at this man. However, let's agree that Peter chose a pretty poor place to hang out that night in a time of crisis and vulnerability. Was it wrong to stand by a fire and warm himself? The answer is obviously no. But I would maintain that had he not been around that company that he was around that night, he would not have succumbed to the not, to the, to the denial of his Lord to the point of cursing and swearing, I do not know this man. Peter would have been wise to keep his distance that, that evening. The atmosphere, the state of mind, and the intense circumstances surely wore on Peter that evening to the point that he crossed over and I believe he entered into a state of evil because of his appearance of evil. Third illustration. The book of Daniel is, is, um, is filled with good illustrations of people that properly avoided the appearance of evil. I'll pick out two. When the decree came to the three Hebrew men along with the, the multitudes that day to bow to that idol, have you ever wondered why those people didn't just bow to that idol and save themselves a lot of grief? I mean, after all, it's the heart that matters, correct? Couldn't I have at least bowed? God knows my heart. You know, we're just going to get through the situation. What would everybody else have thought? Would it have not have been the appearance of evil? 
They chose not to. And Daniel, could anybody have blamed Daniel for at least not going to the window, at least not opening up that window, maybe at least changing the time, maybe picking a different window? Um, did, do you have to put it in their face, Daniel? Do you have to do that? Daniel said, I think, well, it does, the, the scripture does not say. I'm assuming that Daniel realized that by him giving tacit obedience to this command, and he knew what was behind it, Daniel was not a dumb person, that he knew that it would have been sending a signal of the appearance of evil, and he just quietly went to his window, knowing full well that he would have a, an up-close look of the lions in the not-too-far-distant future. There's another uh, appearance of evil that I would like to talk about, give you a couple illustrations about, and that is much more subjective. But how about the perceptions of others? Maybe things that aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, but could be perceived that way by others. And again, very subjective, and in, in this arena, the thing could be done for the wrong reasons. In other words, perhaps we could use this as a lame excuse not to do something that we really should. So I almost hesitate to mention it, and yet I think there's some examples we have in Scripture of, of this very thing, and I'm just going to throw a couple out to you. In the book of Joshua... The tribes of Reuben, Dan, and half the tribe of Manasseh came to, to Joshua when they were about to go over into Canaan, and they said, we like the grass here on the east side of Jordan. Could we just live on the east side of Jordan? Joshua said, yes, you can do that, after much conversation. But he said, you have to go over and you have to help your brothers uh, conquer the land of Canaan. And they said, sure, not a problem, we'll do that. So they did that, went over, did it, and uh, when it was all done, they said, all right, we'll see you later, we're going back to the east side of Jordan. And so they commenced to do so. When they got to the other side of Jordan, to the east side, it says that they talked with one another and they said, hey, let's build an altar here on, on the shore of Jordan that's like the one over in the west side of Jordan so that the people over on the east side, our children and our posterity, will always know that we really belong to the people on the west side of Jordan and there won't be this, this problem in the, in the future that the people on the east will say, hey, we don't really have anything to do with you people on the west. So they said, oh, good idea, let's build the altar. So they put up the altar and they go, they go home. Uh, somebody on the west side of Jordan sees the altar and says, time out. You can't build an altar and sacrifice over here. That's not, that's not God's way. And they were exactly right. What they didn't know was the reason the altar was built. It was built as a replica of what was taking place on the west side of Jordan. So what happens? The people on the east just, they band together and they say, we're going to go out and we're going to take those guys out. We're going on the east side of Jordan. We're just going to wipe them out. Some wise man somewhere says, before we do that, let's send a delegation over here and see if we can reason with these people. So they did that. When they got over there, the delegation has a conversation with, uh, who is it here again, Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they just kindly explained why they did it. And they said, oh, okay, we get that. So they trot back to the other side of Jordan and said, put your swords away, we don't have to fight after all. But, but the whole misunderstanding had to do with what was indeed an appearance of evil. But, but it wasn't evil at all. You get it? Paul dealt with this in his experience. In, in the thing with circumcision. 
Have you ever wondered why Paul, in chapter 16 of Acts, third verse, fourth verse, whatever it is, right after chapter 15, when they had decided we will not demand circumcision as a prerequisite for being a Christian, drop three verses into chapter 16, he hauls Timothy out and gets him circumcised so he don't offend the Jews. You go to Galatians, and he, he, he encounters a man named Titus, who the Jews want to circumcise, he says, no, no, not going to do it. I mean, is he dyslexic? I mean, what's up with Paul here? What's the deal with this? I think in both instances, Paul was trying to avoid the appearance of evil. In Timothy's case, he realized that there would be an undue stumbling block to a very sensitive people if he just didn't quietly get Timothy circumcised. Nobody forced him to do that. He did that of his own volition so that he wouldn't be an offense. In Titus's case, where they're demanding this, he says, time out, not going to happen. We don't demand that. And so there again, he's trying to, he's trying to um, not be an offense to the church of God by setting an example that perhaps we should circumcise. Does that make sense? He had different reasons for doing his, his different things. He was not at all dyslexic or, or waffling. He had the same situation in Acts 21. He comes, as Paul enters Jerusalem, uh, the elders at Jerusalem came to him and said, you know, Paul, he said, the story's following you around that you despise the law of Moses. We know that's not true, but you're going to have to prove it here in Jerusalem. So he said, there's four brothers over here that have taken out a vow and shaved their heads. Now, we're not going to go into all of that. But, but their advice to Paul was to prove to our brothers, our Jewish Christian friends here at Jerusalem, would you be willing to shave your head and enter into this vow with these brothers? And Paul says, not a problem. Where's the razor? He doesn't. Here again, Paul wished to avoid the appearance of evil. Even though it wasn't evil, I mean, he wouldn't have had to enter this vow. I don't, I don't even know, I don't exactly know what he vowed or, you know, what, what, how he all entered into this. But one thing I do know, he shaved his head and he identified with these brothers simply to avoid the appearance of evil, although it was very subjective and not at all evil in and of itself. Another example, and this is the last one I have, is Peter and Jesus in Matthew 17, whenever there's this question comes to Peter about paying the temple tax. Uh, the Pharisees accused Peter and Jesus of not paying the temple tax. And Peter says, and he got defensive, he said, sure, we pay the temple tax. But Peter, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he says, and you remember the lesson, he said, who should be taxed? Should it be the sons or the servants? And Peter says, well, it should be the servants. He said, well, you and I happen to be sons, but... So we don't cause an offense. Peter, go down to the river, chuck in the hook, pull out a fish, take the deal out of them, out of his mouth, go pay the temple tax. Now here again, apparently Jesus was trying to teach Peter the lesson that, you know, uh, Peter, we were not under obligation to do this, but because I am so concerned about not causing offense, I'm quite willing to pay the tax. It's interesting that that word offend in that particular uh, passage is the same word that we get our word scandal. Jesus would have been would have considered it scandalous not to do that. As a very P.S. here, take note that Jesus didn't take the same attitude toward observing the Sabbath. Uh, he was very uh, he was very um, 
uh, polite but forthright that the way the Sabbath was being observed was wrong. And on that point, he did not waffle and he raised, he had a lot of enemies because of that. I think the takeaway from this is, folks, it's going to take a spiritual mind to discern when we should and we should not do a thing and how it will affect our testimony for Jesus in this arena. All right. So why and how in 2018 should I be sensitive to avoid the appearance of evil? Let's tackle the why once. I suggest that the reason why we should be sensitive to avoid the appearance of evil is because of who we are. Let me read you a medley of verses here. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But he that is enjoined unto the Lord is one spirit. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things passed away, all things are new. 2 Peter 1.4, Peter talks about our exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye are a the partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, as people, as Christian people, we belong to a holy God. And God's holy nature and ours, suddenly, as 1 Corinthians talks about, we're joined to the Lord in spirit. We become partakers of this divine nature. Should we not shun the very appearance of evil? Would that not be a logical conclusion to come to? First Peter, again, Peter says, But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. When I profess to be born again, but I insist on hanging around on the periphery of questionable, I think it thwarts the ability of the Holy Spirit to fully work in our lives and perfect holiness. I truly believe that. You know, it's easy for me to excuse my unholy expressions or activities, but is that consistent with being one with God in spirit, of being partaker of the divine nature? I would really like this point to sink down into our hearts. I really would. Can you and I be honest before God? Can we... Can we give a compelling argument to why we are attracted to their edges? Why we constantly perhaps want to push to the periphery? You know, as a farmer, I occasionally have to deal with chemicals. Not a lot, but I do some. And there is due warning on those chemicals that this could cause you bodily harm. Now, don't ingest it, don't sniff it, don't touch it. You know, handle it with care. Just be as keep your distance as far as possible. Now, how ridiculous would it be for me to taste just a little bit, or you know, sniff it, get into the thing of sniffing it? Ridiculous. It would be absolutely ridiculous. Doesn't make any any logical sense at all. And yet, I'm afraid sometimes in our spiritual journey, that's what we want to do. We want to sniff the evil. We we're willing to play just right there on the edge. And then we we suddenly wonder why we are not experiencing 
the Holy Spirit in our lives. Number two, why should I be sensitive to the appearance of evil? Because I want to be careful not to spoil my testimony for Christ. You know, society around us is largely numb to the things of God and what God hates and willingly engages in all sorts of sin and glorifies things that are totally disgusting to God. I believe that when God's people lose a sharp sense of what really drives the world's indulgences and are willing to hang around and show interest in the things that are borderline at best or at most uncertain, and give an uncertain sound, it does nothing for the testimony of the radical transforming power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. Ephesians 5.1 Be therefore followers of God as dear children, skipping down to verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Is my life so in contrast with the evil around me that I can expose and rebuke and reprove and convict a watching world. I think our very presence in the world should be one that brings convictions and points to a holy God. And nobody should be kept guessing what side this person is on. I think we inadvertently pacify the world's conscience and give up opportunity to quietly reprove when we give indication that we are largely interested in and participating in the same things that the world is participating in. I truly believe that this is a big part of why we have the rampant impotence in modern day churches. There is not a dime's worth of difference. Not a dime's worth. To the church here at Thessalonica, Paul does not give a lot of, um, of specifics as to what he means here about abstaining from appearance of evil. It's largely a letter of commendation and encouragement. However, in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter four, about the first ten verses, he does delve in deeply on the subject of moral propriety. The, and, I'm not gonna, that's not my topic, I'm not gonna go into it. But the same thing still holds true today. For the people of God, we cannot overemphasize moral propriety and scruples in our lives, setting up walls uh, to keep us pure in this arena. The Trump administration is not an administration that I find compelling to look to for uh, any um, example in moral propriety. However, I was encouraged, should I say encouraged? To find out that our vice president actually has a very good um, sense of this thing. And maybe some of you are aware of this. But if you do a little Google, you, you will find out that Vice President Mike Pence has rigorous scruples, safeguards that he has set up in his, in his life to, to shield him from being inadvertently drawn into immoral things in, in relating to the opposite sex. Two of the things he will he will not do is he will never be alone with a woman for a meeting, okay. And in this in this day and age we live, that's that's huge. And he will never be in a place where alcohol is served without his wife, okay. Now, I hope we wouldn't do any of these things either. But I'm just pointing out there's a man that 
I, I do not judge Mike Pence. I, his standing before God is with him and God. However, I applaud those two principles. Okay? I would be, encourage us to be sensitive, very sensitive to the messages we are sending a watching world, even though we may be doing it innocently or in our minds or what we're doing is completely rational. Look at it from a different point of view. How does a watching world interpret what we are perhaps doing? I'm asking us to think clearly about our activities and our actions as we go through life. I'm going to give you two examples. I don't know if they're good examples, but I'm going to give you two that I have encountered that um, I want you to consider and make application to your own life. Okay, so let's back up 30 years. Uh, before we had cell phones that told us our time, a lot of us wore rich wrist watches for good reason. Uh, I wear one today because I don't want to look there, I want to look here. But anyway, um, back in the day, when I was a teenager, you could go into any 5 and 10 cent store and pick up these, these watches, these digital watches for like 5 bucks. You remember that? And they had like a little, they'd have like maybe a Chevy Insignia or a Ford Insignia or a Packers or whatever. And there was like a whole range of these things. And that was my everyday watches. I would go in there and basically I just, that one, you know, give me that one. I just want to tell time. I never really paid a lot of attention to the Insignia on it. So uh, I was wearing a watch that uh, had the Insignia of the Penn State Nittany Lions, Okay. So those of you from Pennsylvania, you immediately know that what that is. Those of you who are not are currently sitting there with blank stares in their face. So the Nittany Lions, Penn State Nittany Lions, was the football team of Penn State. Okay, I was so ignorant, I didn't even know that. Okay, that's that's how into sports I was. So I just wore the watch. One day there was a there was a person came on the farm there, and he saw my watch, and he says to me, he said, "Is that a cheap watch or a statement?" Cheap watch. That's what it is. <laughs> Cheap watch. But you know, I never have forgotten that because it, 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 it's, it told me that I can inadvertently do things innocently that sends a statement that I really don't want to send. Now you apply that wherever that fits in your life. What are you doing? What am I doing currently? that would be an appearance of evil. Now you could say, now brother, you're taking that far to say that that's evil. Perhaps I am. But I really don't want to identify with a football team. I'll be honest with you. It's up to you. Well, no, it's not, not up to you. I sort of hope you don't either. But I really do not want to be a person that is identified with any sports team in this country. End of story. That's where I'm at with it. I'll give you another one here that doesn't apply to me necessarily, and I don't know if it applies to you, but I think it's something that is that is current and we have to think about. At Maranath Bible School here a few years ago when I was substitute teaching, I, I had the opportunity to sit in on a, on a panel discussion on the morality of, of obtaining a concealed carry permit. Okay, and for those of you that don't know what that is, that is a, a permit to carry a handgun, a concealed weapon, all right? I'll cut right to the chase. I was um, interested, I guess to, I'll say that, to notice the, the reasons given for or against that position, okay? I was bothered with the pro-camp and the reasons they were giving 
before obtaining a concealed carry permit. I was I was bothered by the 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 words relative, um, and it seemed to be a lack of thinking clearly in my mind. In other words, 99% of people obtain a concealed carry permit for one reason. Now, we all know that if we do, it's not for that reason. However, again, I ask the question, does the watching world know that? Now, if I'm completely in left field here, I would definitely entertain uh, entertain uh, feedback. But my sense was that because my reasons are legitimate, it doesn't matter. I tell you, it does matter. It matters. The testimony of Jesus should be too dear for us than that. Number three, why should I be sensitive to the appearance of evil? I suggest because when I hang around the edges of evil, the general course tends to be in one direction, and the influence of evil will almost invariably give way to that which is unquestionably evil. I won't belabor this long. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Please think back with me to our friend Lot. Do we need to say more? Proverbs 13.20, A companion of fools shall be destroyed. There are many people today who are steeped in the throes of sin, I believe, because they have dabbled too long in the waters of the appearance of evil. Number four, I'll quickly say this one. What about this this thing of the appearance of evil when it is more subjective and the evil is more what is perceived by others than really an evil as God would see it? And think with me back to those illustrations I gave to you from the Scripture. I'll just give you three things to think about along those lines that maybe will help us through that. Principle one, I think it's always honorable to be sensitive to others and their scruples as much as possible and try not to be offensive. All right, And this is largely going to be in the amoral cultural issues. Okay, principle number two, it is never right to compromise truth in an attempt to avoid offense. And I think... Titus and Paul are a good illustration of that. And principle number three, the children of God should expect to be ridiculed and at times persecuted because of righteousness. That is at times misconstrued as evil as it is defined by the broader society. Okay? So let's not get this mixed up in our minds. Let's understand truly what evil is, truly what good is. And as we navigate this this subjective path here, I think those three principles will help us well in our way. Okay, last point. How are we going to avoid the offense of the appearance of evil as Paul appeals to this church and I believe to us today? Number one, let's always deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. And you say, well, you know, duh, that's self-obvious, isn't it? Well, I think the desire to indulge in that which is the appearance of evil is almost always stimulated by an uncrucified desire of the old nature when it is not daily crucified. I think the strength of the appeal of the almost evil and the indulgence therein is likely, very likely, a barometer 
of our spiritual depth. Now that's a mouthful, I know. And, and I would, I would, I would make room for spiritual maturity there, okay? But I do think that we can use that somewhat as a barometer for ourselves and for others as where, where are these people spiritually? Where am I spiritually? Um, and I would like to apply that. Let's, let's each of that, each person here this morning apply that to themselves. When I have this appeal to dabble around in the almost evil, how does God see my spiritual depth? Number two, how do I avoid this? Be intentionally focused on what is good and upbuilding. I think when we do that, we will find much better clarity on what we should avoid. Romans 12.9 Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. All right, Simple directives. Amos 5.15, the prophet Amos says much the same thing. Hate the evil and love the good. Philippians 4, Paul says to the church of Philippi, Whatsoever things are of a good report, think on these things. If I hate evil, I abhor evil, and I'm willing to engage in such things that are of a good report, will not largely take care of the appearance of evil. Point three, which is largely just an extension of point two, intentionally avoid flirting with the edges of evil. I think some of the best instruction comes from the proverb writer in Proverbs 4.14. Here's his instruction. He says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Okay, that's the instruction. Now here's the instruction on how to do that. He says, Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. All right? I mean, just simply avoid it. If I don't even go close to the path, I will not be conflicted in my mind whether that's actually the path or not. And again, I, I, I point out that it has happened over and over and over again that people will begin to dabble with the questionable and on the edges. And soon the thing will, be, will consume them. And the vice of sin will overpower the work of grace in a person's life, I fear. Please, avoid hanging around the gates of Sodom. Point four. I will avoid the appearance of evil by associating myself with upbuilding, God-fearing people. And can I point back to Lot and Peter again? What if those two men would have hung around? What if Lot would have hung around Abraham just a bit more rather than the people of Sodom? What if Peter would have avoided that fire that night? Do you think that would have kept them from the appearance of evil or falling into evil as they did? I'm intrigued um, in reading uh, criminal statistics sometimes. I don't do much of this, but I'm sure all of us have read a, a news clip at some point of a person that was arrested in a crime sting that really was that the person was was actually innocent, but the very fact that he was in the circle at that particular time made it questionable, and he was arrested in the sting. In other words, I've never been arrested in a sting, and you haven't either. And the reason is I've never been around the right people. All right, you, you get the connection here. 
2 Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. And I believe this is the punchline. With them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Brothers and sisters, I believe the imperative of right associations can hardly be overemphasized in avoiding the appearance of evil and pursuing righteousness. Today, you and I have to make an honest analysis of our lives. I do and you do. What about our witness? What about our life? I can't see into your heart. You know your heart. Are you abstaining from the appearance of evil? If you are not, if you have, if you have felt yourself just kind of like that three-year-old who just goes, as you listen to this this morning, ask yourself, why, why did, why do I feel that in my heart? What's wrong? I ask you that question. Why is there the appeal of evil in my life? Have I allowed Jesus to cleanse me of all unrighteousness? Am I clearly avoiding the path of unrighteousness, passing by it, just turning completely away from it? Again, those are questions I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. But I think if we're honest before God, we can answer those questions. And that's my prayer this morning. Can we honestly look into our lives and ascertain whether or not we are abstaining from the appearance of evil as God would have us for our soul's sake and for the sake of the testimony to the world.